Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers and grandmothers, great-grandmothers, I had a few of those in traditions, and mother figures. We are so appreciative of the many ways that you impact our lives. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the book of Romans, the last chapter, Romans 16. We're going to look at verses 1 to 16. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we are so grateful for the women in our lives, our wives, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, mother figures who impact us in supersized ways, who help us to take the next step in our walk with Jesus and encourage us. Father, uh, we ask that this would be a special day and a blessing and encouragement to their hearts. And Father, that you would take your inspired and errant word and challenge all of us and move all of us in ways that are for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I want to start by just sharing three short letters that were written by gals to their mothers. The first was by Salmon. Salmon says that when she was growing up, she said to her mom one day, you are like a fairy. In fact, you have a voice just like Tinkerbell. And mom, you are always right. Now, moms, you probably have heard that a lot of times, right? You are always right. And mom said to Salmon, no, I'm not always right. I just do the best I can. But a day is going to come eventually when you will not need me. And Salmon said, no, that day will never come. And then recently, Salmon, now quite grown, wrote, it's been 10 years since I lost mom. And mom was right about almost everything, but there was one thing she was not right about. I never outgrew needing mom. I still need her. That reflects the supersized impact that moms and grandmoms have in our lives, mom figures. The second letter is from a little girl, no longer little, now she's 20, named Abigail. Abigail says that my mom passed along many different sentences to me, many different thoughts, but there are two words that stick with me. I remember the day she gave me those two words. I was heading off to kindergarten. I hadn't been to preschool, so it really was my first day at school. And I was scared. And I said to my mom, how am I going to make friends? I don't know anyone. How am I going to do this? And mom gave me two words. She said, be Switzerland. <laughs> really? Well, you probably know that Switzerland has remained neutral for 500 years. Even in World War I and World War II, they didn't choose sides. They were a friend to all, enemy and benefactor alike. And so what 
Abigail's mom was saying is, be like Switzerland, be kind to everyone, show the love of Christ to everyone, whether popular or unpopular. So Abigail at age 20 said, I'm about to enter the real world. I finished my schooling and I'm about to start my first real job, 40 hour a week job and I'm nervous. And as I drive to work, I'm gonna say over and over again to myself, be Switzerland and it will get me through. And I suspect that's true for many of us. We remember certain words, certain phrases that our mom said to us. On the way to church this morning, I called my mom. She's in a rehab center. She's been sick for a little while and is getting better. And so I wanted to call her and I wanted to talk to her. But unfortunately, she really couldn't talk. They were caring for her. And so I wanted to tell her of a few words this morning that she reminded me of that I was going to share with you. The first is Proverbs 15:1. She used to say this all the time. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And I've thought about that many times when I like to be harsh and I think, okay, I need the soft answer. Another is Proverbs 16:18. She said this, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then there was Proverbs 13, 24. My mom said this to my two older sisters over and over again. Spare the rod and spoil the child. You can imagine how difficult it is to be my mom. She had to get through two kids to finally get a cherub born. <laughs> Very hard to be, oh, what was that verse? Pride goeth before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. Right, got it, mom. All of us probably have these words or maybe scripture verses, things that our mothers, our grandmothers, our surrogate mothers have shared with us that go through our mind that help us to navigate life in a good way. The final memory is from Pat Witte. She said, the day I dreaded finally arrived. My mom had been suffering with dementia. My always capable, very intelligent mom was now forgetting to pay her bills. It was time that I took over that. Not only did I look through her bills, but I thought I'll work through her wallet and and I'll make sure she has cash in case she's somewhere and she needs to pay something. And while I was there in her wallet, I found this little compartment. I'd never seen it before. And inside, there were three or four poems I had written in the 1960s. My mom had carried those poems for more than a half a century. They weren't even good poems. But I had written them and mom carried them close to her heart on her personhood. That's the way many moms, grandmas, mother figures are. They're sentimental. They care for us. They nurture us. They mature us. They give us wise words. And we would be wise to follow Proverbs 31 and cry out blessed. Cry out wise. As I thought about this morning... I love Mother's Day, 
but I don't really like figuring out what to preach on Mother's Day. It comes like every 365 days. And I got to be honest, there's not like several decades worth of Mother's Day texts. There aren't several decades worth of Father's Day texts or Christmas texts or resurrection texts. Some of these holidays are, are difficult because you don't want to be novel. If you're novel, you're heretical. But you also don't want to preach Proverbs 31 year after year. This would be like my 23rd Proverbs 31 sermon in this church if I did that. And so I was whining to one of my pastor friends and he said, how about Romans 16? That didn't crack my top 100 list. But when you ask for advice and someone gives it, you got to kind of take it. So if I pull this off, it's all on me. But if I don't, Pastor Andrew suggested Romans 16 for Mother's Day. I just want you to know that. So let me read what Pastor Andrew suggested for today. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, also called Priscilla. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, that's husband and wife. Junia is the wife. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. So it is a Mother's Day text. <laughs> Greet and Secretus, Phlegian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermus, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philo, Logos, Julius, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, really? A Mother's Day text. But we do need to remember that all scripture is given to us. All scripture is profitable. Now, it might not be equally applicable, but we can gain something from all of Scripture. So we'll claim 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so as we begin this text... I want to make three observations, and then we're going to look at four women. The three observations are this. 
Paul has not yet been to Rome. We've been able to follow Paul's travels through the book of Acts and also the epistles. So we know that Paul has not yet been to Rome, and yet he mentions 27 individuals and two groups. That by itself is stunning. Now, how does Paul do this? How does he know 27 people in a church in which he has never been? I think part of the answer is that Emperor Claudius in AD 49 actually expelled all the Christ followers from Rome. And so many of them went to Ephesus and Corinth and the Galatia region. And so it's very possible that Paul met many of these individuals who used to live in Rome while they were expelled from Rome. And then in AD 54, Claudius invited the Christians back and many of them returned. But I'm still amazed. Paul knows 27 people and two people groups from an area in which he's never been. Now we have to understand that if we read the book of Acts and we read the epistles, Paul will impact no less than 60 churches. He will plant or pastor, write epistles to, or impact 60 different churches. And in all of his epistles, he starts out by saying things like, I'm praying for you. In fact, in chapter one, verses eight to 10 of Romans, he says that I'm lifting you up before the Lord. Paul often says things like, night and day I bring you before God. In other words, Paul prays intercessorily on behalf of many individuals. Here we have 27 in a church he has not physically been to. And we know that before he's done, he will pastor or plant or write epistles to or impact 60 churches. This being one where he hasn't been and he gives us 27 names. How long each day does Paul spend on his knees in prayer? How big is Paul's intercessory prayer list? Like many of you, I have an intercessory prayer list. Mine isn't written down. I think my wife's is. That tells you something about organization, doesn't it? On my list are those that I pray for all the time and then those who I pray for because they're falling into difficult times. Maybe they're spiritual attacks or maybe I have the opportunity to share the gospel with them and I'm praying that God may draw them. Maybe they're in the hospital or lost a job or have a wayward child or grandchild and, and so they're on my temporary prayer list until that situation improves or maybe it lasts for a long time and they move over into my permanent prayer list. But 27 people in a church he hasn't been to and he's going to impact 60 churches, I probably have to increase my intercessory prayer list. Now every time I talk to my mother, my mom will say, I'm praying for you. In fact, uh, if she had been able to talk to me today, I have no doubt that my mom would have said, Dad and I prayed for you because you're going to preach today. Because mom doesn't just say to me she's praying for me. She generally tells me what she's praying about. And so 
She has an intercessory prayer list. My wife has an intercessory prayer list. I suspect that many of you have an intercessory prayer list. And the first thing I want to take away from the text is Paul values prayer so much that in all of his epistles, even an epistle to a church he hasn't been to, he names people before the Lord because prayer matters. Your prayer, my prayer, our prayer, one for another matter. And how many mothers and grandmothers and surrogate mothers lift us up in prayer? Prayer really matters. The second initial observation I want to make from the text is this. This list has diversity in a very positive way. I know that word is used in lots of ways in society. I'm just using it in a very positive way. This list has Jew and Gentile and Greek. This list has slave names, those in the middle class, those in the senatorial class, and it even has an imperial family name in it. It has male and female, both genders are mentioned. There is a positive diversity in this list. So we have slaves, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Phlegian, Hermes. Those are all slave names. We have senatorial class, Aristobulus and Narcissus. Those are senatorial class and Narcissus is an imperial name. So there is probability of somebody of the imperial family in the church of Rome that Paul has mentioned, who probably was expelled under Emperor Claudius' expulsion and then came back. And Paul prays for them all. And I look out and I see individuals with incredible accomplishments. Some of you have some pretty impressive letters behind your name. Well done. Some of you manage or run companies and you're called CEO or president. Well done. Some of you have influenced people in the academy or the school. Well done. But none of it matters at the foot of the cross. None of it. Not one iota. It's a bad idea to walk up and say, hey, Dr. Jeff, Jesus, nice to meet you. (laughs) Bad idea, he doesn't care. It matters not one iota. And so here we have a list of slave through imperial family, including senatorial family and the middle class, male and female, because all of us are at the foot of the cross in equal standing. All of us stand before Jesus as sinners and those who have accepted Christ. All we've done is by faith traded our sin, which was thrust on Christ, and the wages of sin is death, And Jesus died to pay for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. He died for us, then rose again, conquered death. And he imputes his righteousness on us if we believe in Jesus. And if you haven't believed in Jesus, believe in him today. You, I, we are sinners. And we're not going to impress Jesus by what we've done. Because we're sinners in need of saving and he offers to save us. At the foot of the cross, It doesn't matter if we're in the imperial class or we're slaves. We all need Jesus equally. And Paul reaches out to people in every economic and social stratus 
among the 27, all of whom we believe know Jesus Christ as Savior. A final initial spot or observation from the text is this. Paul, who hasn't even been to this church, knows something of what the people are doing. At the moment in which you and I come to Christ, we're given one or more spiritual gifts. Many of us have time and talents and treasures, not to hoard ourselves, but to be used for the kingdom. That's why he gives us what he gives. And Paul recognizes that. He's walking through and he's saying thank you to people. He's noticing the people in the sound booth in the back. The only time you know anything about the sound booth is when my microphone fails. Or how about PowerPoint? Someone's got to run it. Someone's got to write it. Someone's got to load it. After church, somebody up front is going to say some cute thing, trying to entice you to pick up the chairs. Thank you for doing that. Or maybe taking the trash out with you or whatever, however you serve, whether you teach or you open your home to a small group or you come alongside and you mentor someone or you send a little card or you give a gift. Those things matter and we ought to notice them and thank people for doing those things. Paul hasn't been to this church. Listen to what he says. Servant, patron, these are his words in the text. Fellow workers risk their necks for my life. Hard worker, fellow prisoners, beloved in the Lord, fellow worker in Christ, beloved, approved in Christ, workers in the Lord, and serving as a mother to me. Paul notices how people utilize their time, their talent, their treasure, their spiritual giftedness. He notices and he says, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And he encourages them to continue to serve. Well, it's a Mother's Day text. At least Andrew claims it is. So let's take a look at some of the 10 distinguished mothers. The first one is Phoebe. I'm tickled by Phoebe because I live on Phoebe Lane. Betty Ann and I have a house. There was only four houses on our street. Phoebe Lane. And I remember when our road was renamed from whatever it was, Blue Jay, I think, to Phoebe. I'm like, what's a Phoebe? And everything's a bird, and so I discovered Phoebe is a bird. But it actually means bright and radiant. She's the first gal. She's the first person mentioned. More words are given about her, and she's first. Paul is a Jew, and it would be typical of a Jew to list first and use the most words for the one who is most impactful for the kingdom. I think that's what we have here. We have an individual who's used mightily for the kingdom of God. And so out of 27 people, she's listed first and she's given the most amount of space because she's impacted from Paul's point of view, the church at Rome more than anyone else. And so she's mentioned. And Paul mentions several things about her. He calls her a servant. That's what my ESV says. That's diakonia or diaconate. 
servant is a good translation, but it's not the only possible translation. This word could be read as deaconess. I don't know which way to read it. There's absolutely nothing in the text that tells me whether she had a formal office in the church or she was just a great servant within the church. But that there are deacons and deaconesses in the church should not be doubted because 1 Timothy 3 tells us this. The first 10 verses of 1 Timothy 3 talks about deacons and then it uses the word likewise and then it talks about deaconesses. It's a formal office. We learn a little bit about it in Acts chapter 6. That's where seven men are appointed to help the Hebraic and Grecian Jews, the widows who have too much month left and not enough paycheck. And so those who have a little bit of extra money have given to a benevolent fund, the hoopah, and these seven individuals distribute it to those who have need. That was one of the roles of a deacon or a deaconess. I can't tell you if Phoebe has that formal office. The word used might indicate it, but more than that, it indicates that she is a servant to many. She does things behind the scenes, maybe up front as well, but she ministers to others. And Paul commends her for that. In addition to that, it says in verse 2 that she is a patron. A patron is the word prostasis. It means benefactor. We use the word the same way today. We might say that she is a patron of the arts. Or she is a patron of the academy. What that means is it's probably somebody with a deeper than normal pocketbook who understands that one is a steward, not an owner, and that is an act of worship. One can use what God has entrusted in worshipful aspects. And so here we have Phoebe, who has been a patron of the church and patron of people and a patron of Paul. She has probably funded some of the letters, the epistles that are written and then delivered or funded some of the ministry of Paul. And so she is listed first. And she is lifted up as an example of how we ought to live. And I know that there are many women and mothers and grandmothers and surrogate mothers who have lived, who are living like Phoebe. A name that means bright and radiant. Second, we have Priscilla. We know a lot about Priscilla. She's also called Prisca. Priscilla and Aquila, wife and husband, are mentioned in six passages in the Bible. I believe she's mentioned first four times and he's mentioned first two times, but they function as a ministry team. We know some of the things that they have done. We know that they are tent makers. They work with animal skins probably work alongside a tanner. And we know that they have hired Paul. Paul not only is an itinerant preacher and an evangelist, but he has to have a job. I'm guessing that this was a mercy hire rather than a strategic hire. Oh, it was strategic for the kingdom. But I'm guessing that they're probably paying him more than he's actually worth because he's spending a lot of time in the synagogues preaching. In addition, 
We know that while they were in Ephesus, Paul just moved in. Just moved in. Later this afternoon, my daughter and son-in-law and two grandchildren are just moving in. They've sold their house and they'll be with us for about two and a half months. I wish it were two and a half years. Can't wait for it. We were so excited. We brought the granddaughter over last night, left the parents home. (laughs) But they're all moving into our basement. And if you've seen our house, well, that's funny because we have a small house. And they're all in the basement except the granddaughter. And their dogs are definitely in the basement. You heard that here, folks. It's now gospel. Well, Paul moved in with Prisca and Aquila for 18 months. And then when Paul moved, they moved with them. They moved to what we know to be three different countries. When Paul moved to Syria, they moved to Syria. When Paul moved to Ephesus in Turkey, they moved to Turkey. When Paul moved to Corinth in Greece, they moved with Paul to Greece. And according to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, they housed the church, the local church in their own house. Not only is Paul living with them, not only are they employing Paul, not only are they moving with Paul every time the guy moves, but every time he preaches and people come to Christ, they're joining the house church that meets in the house of Prisca and Aquila. Now, why a house church? Well, we know the answer. It's because until Emperor Constantine in 313 issues the Edict of Milan, it is illegal to have a Christian church building anywhere in the Roman Empire. You can't have one. And it forced the church underground in the catacombs where they buried people or in people's houses. And if you are caught... Although the laws are measured differently in different parts of the empire, if you are caught, you could be arrested. You could even be put to death. And so Priscilla and Aquila are listed second because that's the impact they had. They lived out what we read in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we have this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, who are advancing the kingdom. Like many here, singles and marrieds, like many of our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and surrogate mothers who are investing in the kingdom and advancing it, well done. Well, moving forward and skipping over some choice names, we come to verse 7 where we read of Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. This is one of two times Paul identifies somebody as kinsmen. Some commentary say, well, that's because they're Jews, but I don't think that really does it because there's more than two sets of Jews in this list. We can gain the, the background based on the names and there's a lot more than two. I think kinsman means relative. I think there are two sets of relatives of Paul in the church 
at Rome that Paul writes to. But they're not just kinsmen. They're fellow prisoners. They went to prison for the sake of the gospel. And because of that, they're known among the apostles. Now, there are a few who translate it that they are apostles. That's really a very poor translation. In fact, it's really not even possible. It really reads they are known before the apostles. They're known to the apostles because they went to prison for the sake of the gospel. Maybe they had a home church and they were busted. Paul was in prison, we know for sure, three times. Acts 16, Acts 21, 2 Timothy 2 and 4. But Clement of Rome, who would know, said he was aware of seven times that Paul was in prison. One of those times was with Andronicus and Junia, this husband and wife, who for some reason, for the sake of the gospel, were arrested and put in prison to advance the kingdom. No wonder they were known before the apostles. Now there's a lot of other women, but we're gonna settle on one last one. Verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, she's not even named, that's not helpful. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Who's Rufus? Who's this Simon? Well, if you go to Mark 15, 21, a lot of scholars have put these passages together and decided that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. So this mother figure is the wife of Simon of Cyrene. You remember who he is? Allow your mind to go back to the time when Jesus was beaten. He's beaten probably three times, certainly twice, before he will carry the patabolum on the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. Now we have lots of art pictures where Jesus is dragging the cross. In fact, it's all over art today. He really doesn't do that. 30,000 Jews will be murdered by crucifixion. They left the vertical shaft in the ground, but they made the prisoner carry the patabolum, the horizontal beam, over 100 pounds, along the way of the cross to Golgotha, Calvary. And if the stations of the cross are to be believed... And I believe all of the stations are accurate except one. Jesus fell three times. Does scripture say that? No. But he has lost a great deal of blood. And we know he must have fallen at least once because the Roman soldiers conscript a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the patabolum up to the top because Jesus is now weak, too weak to do it. Now I have no idea if Simon knows Jesus at this point. But he's impacted by what happens. And his family becomes solid in the church. And Simon's wife, Rufus's mother, acts as a mother figure to Paul. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to take a guess. Maybe she was like Priscilla and Aquila who brought in a preacher and said, Hey, can we point out a few things wrong? 
maybe she called in Paul and said, Polly, Romans 16 on Mother's Day? No. You can do better than that. Or maybe she's the one that when Paul was in prison seven times, would bring him food and water because the prison won't give you food and water. And if someone doesn't bring you food and water, you die in prison. Or maybe after one of the beatings, Paul tells us he was beaten with rods, he was beaten with whips. Maybe she cleans up his back and his body. Or maybe she just invites him over for a meal. He's a bachelor. Maybe he doesn't cook. Or maybe he's not good at cooking. Or maybe he doesn't have time to cook. And she sits him down. She's the benevolent general of her kitchen with an apron and her hair up in a bun. And she cooks like nobody's business. And Paul eats several helpings and he finally pushes himself back and said, oh, that was great. I got to go. And she says, Paula, you sit back down, boy. We're going to put some meat on your bones. No self-respecting Jewish woman is letting you go out without two more helpings. And then there'll be doggy bags. You're taking them with you. I don't know what she does. Maybe she gives him advice. Maybe she teaches him. I don't know. But she acts like a mother to this bachelor apostle. And Paul doesn't forget it because she has impacted his life. And that's what happens, isn't it? When you serve in the nursery or children's church or Sunday school or one-way club or Gen 180 or with young adults or maybe as a table mentor with mops or maybe teaching or counseling or mentoring. It's Titus 2, isn't it? Except it's Titus 2 with a twist. Titus 2 says the mature women should train up the less mature women. But here we have a twist where we have a mature woman impacting like a mother, probably the greatest apostle of the New Testament era. And she changes the course of history because of her impact in Paul's life and Paul's impact in our lives. That's what a mother and a grandmother and a surrogate mother can do. I want to close with a story of uh, a few men. They were in a Bible study. In the course of their Bible study, they noticed they all had different Bible translations Wisely, they weren't arguing over something simple and silly like that. But they were just sharing their favorite version and why. And finally, a man said, you know, my favorite version is the one my mom lived before me. That is our favorite version. It's the one that we live before others, like many mothers and grandmothers and surrogate mothers. Paul mentions 10 godly women who impacted the world in Rome. And I'm looking at way more than 10 godly women who are impacting the world that we live in. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to each of you. Let's pray. Father God, uh,
We thank you for the wives, mothers, and grandmothers, great-grandmothers, surrogate mothers, mother figures in our lives that have impacted us, that are impacting us, that have taught lessons, that still teach lessons. And we're grateful. We're grateful for what these women have done, continue to do. Some single, some married, some widows, some deceased. And yet their legacy lives on. And we are grateful. Father, encourage them, bless them, and continue to use them and the rest of us in powerful ways. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.